What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the MMA Meeting Let's Talk with Weasel podcast, where we talk all things MMA, and I hope you guys are having an amazing day. There are a few things I want to say first before I dive into the craziness in MMA. My Patreon. So I've had this Patreon for a pretty long time, and I haven't really done much with it, to be honest. I just kept it as a way for people who wanted to support the channel. But for the people that are, I do feel a little bit bad that I don't have extra content for them. So Street Fight Breakdowns is probably going to make a return. And if they do, it's going to be on my Patreon because I cannot put that on the channel for various reasons. Number two, I might have an extra podcast episode on that as well. It might be shorter than an hour, but just to put out some more content on that page. This is another way for me to say thank you for the people who have been supporting the channel behind the scenes. And regarding MMA now, the last card was pretty crazy. Better than it showed on paper. The fight surpassed the name value of the card. Eight of the 12 fights ended in a finish, most of them in the very first round. Almost the entire prelim card was a finish besides the featured fight, Jared Gordon versus Danny Chavez. And then you also had one of the best knockouts of the year so far, very short year so far, Derek Lewis knocking out Curtis Blades. We had some wonkiness with the whole Chess Skelly fight, where his opponent Emmers didn't even make it out to the octagon because of back spasms before the walkout. Chess Kelly was literally in the cage waiting for his opponent to come out, and he just never came out. Very weird night, but a pretty good night of fights, especially for the heavyweight. We had some young guys in Tom Aspinall and Chris Dawkins getting victories over legends in Andre Arlovsky and Alexei Olnik, respectively. I'm very high on Tom Aspinall, though. He has some underrated striking, very good hands. His speed for the heavyweight division is going to be a problem for a lot of guys moving forward. He's very young, only 10-2 and in MMA, and he submitted Andre Arlovsky. Who submits Andre Arlovsky? I have to give it to the guy to mix up that double leg so suddenly against Andre Arlovsky and then get a quick rear naked choke. Is something you don't normally see from a lot of these heavyweights. The only guy that I remember that can really pull something like that off was maybe Daniel Cormier. You have to go back to Fedor Emelianenko in the past. You don't see a lot of that mix-ups in the heavyweight division, right? And the last guy to submit Andre Arlovsky was Josh Barnett, of all people, back in 2016. And before that, you have to go all the way to his second professional fight in 2000. So Tom Aspinall, with that submission win, it opens a lot of his future opponent's eyes to not underestimate his total MMA game. It reminds me a lot of what happened with Surreal Gan, right? Surreal Gan, also this fantastic striker, very fast for the division, tricky on the feet, gets his opponent to the ground and submits him as well. The heavyweight division is evolving in front of our eyes. When these younger guys are doing this to the older vets of the division, it's so exciting and promising for the heavyweight division that needs this stuff. The heavyweights need this. Yes, we get these one-punch knockouts and these brawling fights, but we need to see stuff like this. This is why Cain Velasquez was so special in the heavyweight division, because he was able to mix up his boxing with his wrestling seamlessly. Nobody else did it like Cain Velasquez. And now we have these young guys doing the same thing, even though they don't have this big background in wrestling. They are mixed martial artists. And speaking of all that evolution, progression in MMA, and talking about skills and techniques, we have Derek Lewis. There's a funny tweet someone posted, and it's 100% true. I just want to get his name to shout him out. At I'm Anto MMA. Derek Lewis is every MMA intellectual's worst nightmare. When you look at it on paper, he is one of the least technical heavyweights in the top 15. And what I mean by that is, there's not a lot of variety to his game. He has tremendous power. He has excellent timing, very underrated timing with his hands. And he's getting a bit better with his wrestling defense. But there's not a lot to look at, you know what I'm saying? He generally loses his fights up until he catches you with that big right hand that he just times perfectly. And he knocks out a guy who is tuning him up on the feet, who shouldn't be tuning him up on the feet. 
feet. Curtis Blades himself looked way better than ever before, specifically in his striking. He did say that he was not going to strike with Derek Lewis. He specifically said that, why would I strike with a guy that I have a big wrestling advantage against? But then he went on and did that. He just struck with him and barely committed for any takedowns, especially what would have been a lot more beneficial was to mix up the takedowns with his hands instead of doing one or the other that DC said perfectly. Curtis Blades was either striking or wrestling. He was not doing both together. And that is what guys like Tom Aspinall was able to do. That's what guys like Surreal Gaon was able to do. Cain Velasquez back in the day like we talked about. Fedor Emelianenko. Even a wrestler like Curtis Blades was not able to do that same sort of thing. And he got caught by one of the biggest uppercuts the sport has ever seen. By one of the biggest punchers the sport has ever seen. Now I do not think, I do not agree with Daniel Cormier. Derek Lewis is not the biggest puncher in MMA. He's probably number two right now and top five of all time. But let's not kid ourselves here. He does not hit like Francis Ngannou. Nobody hits like Francis. You can go through MMA history. No one hits at that level. You have like Derek Lewis and Shane Carwin in a group and then you have Francis Ngannou right above them. That's just otherworldly power. And I also don't agree that the reason why Francis Ngannou was so tentative was because he was facing the powerhouse that was Derek Lewis. That was never the narrative. The reason why Francis Zaganu fought the way he did against Derek Lewis was because he came off such a devastating loss, dominant loss, against the champion Stephen Miocic, where he was extremely confident going in. Some will say cocky. And it crushed his ego, crushed his confidence, and he went into a fight with Derek Lewis, and they both did nothing. You can't just say Francis Zaganu did nothing. Derek Lewis didn't do much either. Francis Zaganu has fought powerhouses before. And after, I man, he fought Jarzino Rosenstrike in his last fight, and look what he did to him. He bum-rushed him. Look what happened when he fought Junior Dos Santos, even when he fought the heavyweight champion himself. I mean, he didn't show that same tentativeness like he did in the Derek Lewis fight. But like I said before, Derek Lewis's next fight has to be against the winner of this weekend's fight. Jarzino Rosenstrike versus Surreal Gans fighting this Saturday. Same time, 8 p.m. Eastern. I actually like that time slot. Lewis versus the winner of that is the perfect fight to make because Jones is fighting the champion. Whoever wins between Nganu and Stipe is going to fight John Jones. That would make a perfect timeline for the winner of Rosenstrike and Gans to fight Derek Lewis somewhere around that time. Maybe in April or May. And the winner of that will be the number one contender. And Curtis Blades needs to take a lot of time off. The heavyweight division is probably going to shake up a bit by the time he comes back. Because this knockout was not your average knockout. It was scary. I mean, to hear the sounds he was making as he was unconscious. And the way he got pummeled after he fell unconscious from the uppercut. He needs to take more than a half a year off. Nine months at least, I would say. Because a guy like him who's as young as he is with a bright future, he's going to be in this game for a long time most likely. You don't want to rush your comeback, man. There's times where you need to be intelligent and save your brain. I understand he wants to get back in there and probably right this wrong against someone and bring back some of that confidence. But his coaches really need to sit him down and just tell him you got to wait, man. We got to get better. No hard sparring. And we'll make a return at the end of the year. But it is going to be a bit weird. Let's say if Surreal Gone beats... Jarzian Rosenstrike, which I think he's favored to do. Yeah, Jarzian. Wow. I do not agree with this. Surreal Gone is almost a 3 to 1 favorite, almost minus 300. He's like in the minus 270s. I do not agree with that. But he is heavily favored to beat Rosenstrike. Let's say he beats Derek Lewis, which he would again be very favored to beat Derek Lewis. And let's say Nganu beats Stipe in the rematch. All of this is very likely to happen. In fact, those are the favorites to win in every single one of those fights. Let's say the favorite wins in all those fights. I don't know if Surreal Gan will fight Francis Agano. Did they ever talk about that? Because they're friends, they've been longtime training partners, both young for the heavyweight division. I don't know how that's going to turn out. I don't know if they're going to do the whole thing like Gan is going to stay as the number one contender and pretty much be the champion under the champion and beat the contenders and stuff like that, but he's never going to have a future for a championship. I have a feeling they would fight each other though. That fight would be 
crazy. If Ngannou beats Stipe and Gan wins his next two fights, they face each other. That is, that might be one of the most anticipated heavyweight fights for me of all time. The whole dynamic of them being training partners, kind of like the same thing with uh, when Usman fought Gilbert Burns. That's going to be an exciting, exciting fight to watch. Man, that makes you think how great this heavyweight division has become. Remember like a year or a year and a half ago, we were talking about how shallow the heavyweight division seemed? I mean, there was a lot of old guys, and Gonray fought for the belt, DC retired. It looked like the heavyweight division didn't really show to be as promising as we would like it to be. But now, man, the division's really growing, way ahead of light heavyweight. Light heavyweight's kind of stagnated. It's still like the weakest division of the UFC right now. On the men's side, it's the weakest division. And the reason why it looks weaker than, let's say, two years ago, is because a lot of those young prospects have lost. They were not able to get over that hump and they were just getting beat down by the veterans of that division. The young heavyweight prospects are beating the veterans. That is what we want to see, man. And speaking of great divisions, what is happening with the welterweight division right now? Why aren't these fights happening? Why isn't anything getting announced? Colby Covington should have taken that Leon Edwards fight. He didn't want to take it, so they're doing Bilal Muhammad versus Leon Edwards. That seems like a miss. Now, Colby is left in limbo. They're going to try to make that Jorge and Usman fight as much as possible. They're going to chase that down because that's a money fight. And a lot of casual fans do not look at Jorge Masvidal like he lost that fairly. Like, they understand that he went into that fight with a short camp. Took on a short notice. And Usman did not destroy him or anything like that. He was stomping his foot, giving him a pedicure. That is what the casual fans saw in that fight. So there's a lot of appeal for the rematch. I think it probably could hit at least 700,000 pay-per-view buys. And that is far bigger than anything Colby Covington can do right now. Besides if he fights Jorge Masvidal. If he would fight Jorge Masvidal, let's say that fight happens. And the UFC builds it up. Puts all the promotion in the fight. Gets press conferences down. Maybe they do the ultimate fighter together. Let's just say hypothetically. They make these great promos. Bring back when they were friends and roommates. And what they went through together. And how it fell apart. And the casual fans got into all of that the commercials on tv it's all about jorge and colby a lot of advertisement going into that fight we could potentially see colby versus jorge being over a million pay-per-view buys you can't really do that with usman though that's the only thing with usman there's not a big rivalry or a lot of drama behind any of his potential fights the most you're getting is with colby covington there's not a lot of that going on that that personal vendetta between two fighters. With Usman and Jorge, it's all competitive. It's all business and all that stuff. With Colby and Jorge, it crosses that into a place where everybody can be invested in. This is an actual fight with real hatred that you rarely get in MMA. Most of it is kind of fabricated around business and stuff like that, which is a reason why I'm still a little bit surprised that they didn't get the Colby and Jorge fight together. I don't know what happened there. Colby says Jorge backed out. Jorge hasn't really said much yet. And now Usman is putting out tweets, making it seem like Jorge's not taking his fight, or it's the opposite. He is taking the fight, and Usman's saying that I'm going to take your belt. Right, so on February 15, after his fight with Gilbert Burns, he tweets, I'm feeling generous. Same day, he knows he's going to meet with Dana White that day, so there's a bit of correlation between these two tweets. He says, big boy business being done with the boss man. Hashtag shot callers. Hashtag and still. He's with Ali Abdelaziz as well, so you know they're going to get down to business and talk some names and talk some numbers. And with Dana talking to them, obviously who's going to come across the table? Jorge Masvidal. Then he tweets out three days later, who's next? And still. A day later, he tweets out, I'm not feeling generous anymore. Anybody can get it. And then he tweets out that same day, 
checkmate posts a picture with Jorge Masvidal's BMF belt, and he says, hashtag and still. Now, what Sherlock Weasel sees here is, they talked about Jorge, he says he's feeling generous, he's gonna give Jorge that title shot, he talks business with Dana, it took days later for him to say anything else about this, three days later actually, which means that Dana most likely talked to Jorge or his manager, got back to Usman and said, Jorge's probably not gonna take this fight, if Jorge did not take the fight, it's 100% because of the numbers, or he's just doing something right now with Jake Paul, I don't know, I, I hope that's not what it would be because he's training Jake Paul to fight Ben Askren. Usman saying he's not generous anymore and anybody can get it, and he pulls that he has Jorge's belt. Tells me he quote-unquote beat Jorge because Jorge did not take the call, did not take the fight, which means he took his belt because the BMF does not decline fights. And if let's say that happened, Jorge turned down the fight because of the numbers, and he's done this in the past, this won't be the first time, he's done this in the past, even against Kamaru Usman. When Kamaru Usman came across the table for him, get that title fight, Jorge before has turned it down. What do you do with this division then? What do we do here? So here are the players. Usman, Jorge, and Colby are all without a fight. Leon Edwards is currently fighting someone. Three of the top four besides Gilbert Burns, who needs to take some time off, they're all just standing around waiting for something. Colby wants to fight Usman or Jorge Masvidal. It seems like Jorge doesn't care to fight Colby Covington, especially with Usman being on the table. But if the numbers are right, he's not going to take the Usman fight as well. Does that just leave Usman, Colby too? I'm not mad at that either. I would love to see that fight. Everybody would love to see a Colby-Usman rematch because Colby, up to this date, he's the guy that came closest to beating Usman. He won three out of four rounds, but got his jaw broken and TKO'd in the fifth round. He was only a few minutes away from actually winning that fight. And if that would happen, let's say Colby and Usman fight again, what does Jorge do? Does he have to take a fight with Leon Edwards now? Or does he wait it out even longer and stretch out his career? I mean, he's not young for this division. He's the oldest guy of the top five. He doesn't have much time left in the sport, to be honest. I would see maybe up to 38, 39 years old, and that's probably pushing it. That's not far away, man. And you cannot really take a lot of time off and not take certain fights in the meantime because opportunities, especially in the division this competitive and moving this quickly, they're going to take the opportunity from you. They could potentially still do the Jorge Nate Diaz rematch that's always on the table. So man, I don't know what is going to go on with this division, especially with Leon beating Bilal Muhammad. And if Bilal Muhammad beats Leon Edwards, craziness in this division. It opens doors for Steven Thompson to be in there, opens doors for a lot of guys who aren't necessarily quote-unquote stars of the division. And one thing I really want to talk about, I want to talk about Jan Blahovich really quick. So Jan's fighting Israel Adesanya. To be honest, a lot of the favoriting of Adesanya and all the excitement around Adesanya's plans, such as fighting John Jones, heavyweight, all that stuff, it's putting Jan Blahovich, his skills, and what his legacy can look like if in fact he does beat Adesanya. Think about it like this now, put this in perspective. What happens if Jan Blachowicz knocks out Adesanya? Which is not out of the question. That guy is extremely dangerous for Adesanya. One punch and that fight's probably over. What does Jan Blachowicz's legacy look like now? He would honestly have maybe number one or number two greatest career comebacks in UFC history. I would say him and Robbie Lawler are at the top for the greatest career comebacks. Robbie Lawler, of course, got cut by the UFC at the fight in Force and stuff like that, doing okay, came back into the UFC, went on this streak, became champion, beat Priusada, Johnny Hendricks, Rory McDonald, Carlos Kanye, etc., etc., put amazing performances. Jan Blachowicz would go from a guy who was never this top contender ever in his career, right? He came into the UFC in 2014 when he body kicked Ilir Latifi, but in his first six fights, he was two and four in the UFC. He beat Latifi, 
lost to Manuel and Anderson, beat Igor Pokrajic, who was not the greatest win of that time, and they lose to Gustafsson and Patrick Cummins. It did not look like he had a bright future in this organization. He was a KSW guy, got into the UFC, and was underperforming. It took up until 2019 for him to actually start this win streak and become that contender that he's always wanted to be. Getting a win streak consisting of the undefeated middleweight champion Israel Adesanya, who's the favorite in the fight, Dominic Reyes, big favorite over Jan Blachowicz, coming off a quote-unquote title loss to John Jones, the guy that came the closest to beat Jones in history, goes and knocks out that guy, then goes up against a guy he lost to before, he's an underdog in that as well against Corey Anderson, knocks him out in the first round, defeats Jacare Souza, one of the top contenders of the middleweight division, and knocks out Luke Rockhold, who is again the favorite over Jan Blachowicz. That's a legendary five-fight win streak for Jan Blachowicz of all people. Someone who's been under the radar for such a long time, if he beats Israel Adesanya and he knocks him out, he will forever be a legend in the sport, 100%. Not only the greatest Polish fighter of all time, one of the greatest Europeans of all time, you could even make the argument that he's the greatest European of all time, people will look at him differently if he beats Adesanya. People will notice him as something different, not that guy that was always trying to make it as a top seven fighter and was never able to get into those ranks. Do not count out that Polish power. Did you guys also know Habib had the mumps when he trained for Justin Gaethje? Not only did he have a broken foot, he also had the mumps. If you don't know what mumps are, they drain you like nothing else. Like, how greater can this guy be? And he doesn't even talk about it that much. He doesn't bring it up. He doesn't, you know, make excuses as to, you know, some of his performances. He's still so dominant. And he fought a guy in Justin Gage who was supposed to, quote-unquote, be one of the hardest opponents for him. And he did him just like he did everybody else. That's absolutely crazy. And he also talked about, uh, he doesn't care to do the GSP fight anymore. He said the GSP is too old. He said, uh, it would be an amazing fight. He would be motivated to fight a GSP, but not one that's, what, 40 years old. And if Habib doesn't care to fight GSP, that means he doesn't care to fight at all. It's pretty much done. He has retired. And everybody should just leave him alone. Let him pursue soccer like he said he wants. Run his MMA organization. Be a great coach in MMA. And just let him do his own thing. He could be a bigger legend doing other stuff as well. If we find out he plays in professional football or soccer, like that would be insane to think about. Or he trains someone who becomes a champion in the future. He runs a successful MMA organization and gets backed up by the UFC and stuff like that. I mean, Habib's career is not over. He has a lot of things he wants to do in life. And he's still a young guy. He's like 32 years old. Connor went on his own thing with the whiskey business, became a very successful businessman. Habib is going to various different things after. And not only that, he talked about Conor McGregor. He talked about many different people in this division. He thinks that Connor's done, that he'll never be in prime form. He believes that Connor's prime has left him, and he'll never be what he once was. And when Habib makes a prediction, we listen. But let's get to the questions here. And we're going to start with the most liked comment by Schlonkface McGee. How would GSP have done defending the 185-pound belt against the top contenders at the time of him beating Bisping to win it? Whitaker, Rockhold, Romero, and Jacare. He wouldn't have done that well. I think he would lose to Whitaker for sure. That take down defense would be a problem. I mean, there were times where he was struggling to get Bisping to the ground, right? It wasn't the same kind of blast double leg that we're used to seeing from 170 pounds against smaller guys. The bigger the guy is, the harder they are to take to the ground. And Whitaker has some of the best takedown defense I've ever seen in MMA. Far superior than anybody else besides maybe pre-USADA Johnny Hendricks that GSP has ever fought before. 
right? You have to also note Whitaker has a very different distance to his game. That long range karate striking with the blitzing and all that stuff. Maybe GSP can counter the blitz and get him to the ground. But as we saw with Whitaker when he fought Romero and Jacare, far bigger than GSP. Great wrestlers in their own right. Great Brazilian jiu-jitsu artists. Whitaker was able to scramble up to his feet every single time. And that leaves the striking exchanges. Whitaker was way faster than GSP. GSP actually looked pretty slow at 185 pounds. He has more power in his strikes. Evident how he knocked down Bisping with a left hook, but I really think Whitaker probably would have TKO'd him. He could have beaten Rockhold for sure. Rockhold doesn't have a great chin. GSP could have possibly found some range shot to connect on him. Even the jabs that come out so suddenly can stun Rockhold here and there. And the one-dimensional striking from Rockhold would be figured out by GSP relatively quick. So I think GSP probably could have beaten Rockhold. Romero was a different story. That would have been too dangerous for him. He would not have taken down Romero. Even if he got Romero on a knee, Romero would have sprung back up to his feet 100%. GSP is a better striker, he's more technical, but with that enigma that is Romero and the way he explodes and lulls people to sleep and all that stuff, I think eventually he would have caught GSP. I think he could have beaten Jacare. Jacare would have been an interesting fight because... Jacare could not take down GSP, I think. GSP probably doesn't want to go to the ground with Jacare Silva, especially early. And he's far superior in the striking. He's a longer guy. He's a little bit faster than Jacare. Jacare is way more one-dimensional. The jab would have been the weapon that would have completely destroyed Jacare from start to end. Every time Jacare would load up on that big right overhand, GSP would pop him with a jab and escape it every single time. The facial damage he would take would be significant. So I think he would have lost to Whitaker Romero. I think he could have beaten Jacare, and I would be pretty confident in him beating Rockhold. And given that Whitaker was the number one contender, interim champion, all that stuff, GSP would have lost his next fight. And then we go to Chris Jackson. Have you ever went full Garbrandt? Only in the sheets. James Warner. Who do you think Usman beats at middleweight? Let me see the rankings. He beats Strickland. He beats Tavares. He beats Akhmadov. He beats Shabazian. He beats Holland, definitely beats Hall, beats Kelvin, beats Brunson, maybe beats Hermanson, maybe beats Till, that would be pretty competitive, beats Kenanier. I think he would beat Costa, and that's it. I honestly think he would have a problem with Chris Weidman. Um, if he doesn't catch him on the feet, Weidman would be a very hard guy to take to the ground. And Weidman would attempt takedowns himself. He's way bigger than Usman is. He's a long guy as well. If Weidman's chin doesn't fail him, he could absolutely beat Usman. Um, just stylistically, it would be a tough fight for Usman. And everybody else, it will come down to the skill level. Whitaker, I think, would beat him. Adesanya would beat him. Marvin Vittori might beat him. And then he would have competitive fights with Darren Till and maybe Jack Hermanson. He'd be successful in that division. And then we go to Zach Batista. What do you think is more likely? Is he beating Jan and going right away to heavyweight to face John? Or John losing and coming back down to reclaim against Izzy? Not running off Jan. Just a hypothetical. I think the latter would be more likely to happen. John loses a heavyweight and comes back down to fight Izzy because that's his only option. If he loses a heavyweight... His only option is to go back down to light heavyweight and face Israel Adesanya. If Izzy beats Jan and John Jones is available at heavyweight, he still has that responsibility at middleweight. So there will be a little bit of a, of a requirement for Izzy to go back down to the 185-pound division. So I think the latter is way more likely to happen. And then we go to Prince. Until Adesanya KO'd Costa, you always greatly favored Jones to win in a fight with Stylebender. You always said that Jones' style is too much for Adesanya. What did Costa fight show you to make you favor Adesanya? So I got this question a few times. It's not necessarily the Costa fight. 
it was the Romero fight. Not only did he stuff a takedown that wasn't necessarily the best time takedown, but it was from an explosive Romero who has a huge pedigree in wrestling, a great wrestler in MMA, able to stuff it without much difficult, mainly using his footwork and range. The other thing that really stood out to me was how patient Adesanya really was. When it comes to fighting a guy like Romero and fighting a guy like Paulo Costa, as you noted here, he's just so intelligent in there. And that's a big thing coming to a fight with John Jones. Most guys cannot compete with Jones when it comes to IQ. Jones has the reach. He has the skills. He's a good wrestler, good Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu artist, good striker, good in the clinch, good everywhere. He's the full package when it comes to skills. The greatest strength he has is his mind. He's one of the most intelligent fighters to ever compete in this sport. Maybe the most intelligent fighter to ever compete in this sport. And he's going to finally face a guy who can meet him on that level when it comes to fight IQ. Adesanya changes his game depending on who he's fighting. He hasn't fought a guy like John Jones yet. He hasn't fought a guy with the same stature, with the same skills, with the same IQ to be honest. Not nearly the same IQ. In fact, you could say most of Adesanya's opponents have lower fight IQ than the guys Jones has fought. But seeing the way he's able to play these same guys, other than Kelvin Gaslam, of course, how he played Robert Whitaker, how he played Romero, how he played Paulo Costa, it may look like they were hardly in the fight at all. I believe he's going to surprise a lot of people if he fights John Jones. Now, that whole thing when I thought Jones was too much for Adesanya still does play in my mind. If Jones gets a hold of Adesanya, he gets him in the clinch, I do think he will take down Adesanya. If he takes down Adesanya, if Adesanya is on the ground with him, Jones is winning. No doubt in my mind. Jones will beat Adesanya if it gets to the ground. Where I have more confidence in Adesanya now is his ability to create range on Jones coming in and going out. He's going to have to be the one that actually comes in on Jones. Has to be the one that's a little bit more aggressive and close that distance on him. But I think he's quick enough to retreat on angles, exit on angles when he throws his own strikes. Also, the light kicks are a big thing. The way he crushed Romero's and Costa's legs is something I can see him doing to Jones as well. He's way faster than anybody Jones has ever fought in his career. I would also say Thiago Santos has the same level of speed as Adesanya, somewhere around there. And look how many problems Santos gave Jones. Jones could not even attack him on the feet in fear of getting blitzed down. Every time Jones threw something at him, Santos retaliated, and you saw Jones clear the field, just move away from everything Santos did. He can't do the same sort of thing against Adesanya. If he comes after Adesanya and throws some big strike, he will not be able to get away from Adesanya, who's 6'4", 80-inch reach, much better with angles and hunting down opponents, cutting them off than Santos, compared to Santos, who has like a, what, 74-inch reach, 6-footer. It's a much different thing, and Santos is still able to catch Jones with many different strikes. And that kind of also goes into the same thing. Jones' takedowns are less effective now than ever before. It's not necessarily because he's getting worse or something like that. The guys he's fighting are getting better. Dominic Reyes, Thiago Santos, these guys, they're not the best wrestlers in the world, but they're able to stuff his takedowns or make it very difficult for him to get him to the ground. It's a huge possibility that happens against Adesanya as well. If Jones has trouble getting down Adesanya, that might be a very bad night for John Jones. When it comes to striking, Adesanya is way ahead of Jones in my opinion. His footwork, his distance work, his angles, even his clinch work is something not to be underestimated against Jones. I mean, he's fought heavyweights before in kickboxing and dealt with them in the clinch as well. Jones is not going to be a stranger to him when it comes to strength and stuff like that. He's fought big guys before. So that's a big reason why I do believe Adesanya has a bigger chance of defeating John Jones. 
And then we go to Carl Lim. Can you give your thoughts on the anomaly that is Michael Johnson? Why is he inconsistent? And what would you change in his training to make him a legit contender? Well, I think it's too late now. Um, he's taking so much damage. He's deep in the game now. He's not young. I think his chances of being a top contender of the division or of the lightweight division. We're not talking about featherweight. Forget featherweight. He's not the same guy there. I think his days of chasing to be a contender of the lightweight division is over. Man, is he the most inconsistent fighter I've ever seen. He beats Tony Ferguson. He beats Dustin Poirier. He beats Edson Barboza. He knocks out Glaze and Tebow. He beat the GOAT, Artem Lobov. I just came with that one. And not only that, he almost knocks out Justin Gaethje. He actually hurts Habib, the only guy to ever stun Habib in a fight. It wasn't crazy. He wasn't rocked or anything. I know people like to argue with that. He wasn't rocked. Habib was just a little bit stunned. He admitted that Michael Johnson is the only guy that ever, quote-unquote, caught him. But with those great performances, Michael Johnson loses the guys like Benil Dariush and Reza Madadi, Stevie Ray, Clay Guida in his last fight. Like, what's, what's the problem here? He's one of those guys that the better the competition is, the better he fights. Because not only that, look at his Josh Emmett fight in featherweight. He fought so well for the first two rounds. Look when he fought Darren Elkins. Elkins was a credible contender of the featherweight division. And Johnson did very well for the first round. Whenever he fights a credible opponent, someone that he has to really be motivated for, there's a big opportunity here if he beats them. He always performs. Always. But when he's fighting a guy that he should beat, he's favored on the betting gods and stuff like that. He just completely underperforms. I think it's a motivation thing, to be honest. It's a mental thing. It's not a skill thing necessarily. He has shown great takedown defense in the past. I would say technically where he lacks the most is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Once it gets taken to the ground, it almost looks like he's helpless at times. But he's good at stuffing takedowns. He's one of the fastest guys to ever compete at lightweight. And his fight with Barboza proved that. He has scary knockout power only at 155. It's completely gone at 145 for some reason. He has no power in that division. So I just think it's a motivation thing. Like, there's no other explanation for it. And what would I change in his training? I mean, better Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. That's mainly the only thing in training. The other stuff has to be mental, and that's mainly a battle he has to have with himself. You can't really train someone to be motivated. Because it's not a stylistic thing, either. All these guys have different styles. All of them. All the guys that he competes well against. Dustin Poirier is different than Justin Gaethje. He's different than Edson Barboza. Right? Edson Barboza is different than Tony Ferguson. It's not a skill thing. It's not a technical thing. It's a mental thing. And then we go to Brian Frosting. How would Israel Adesanya perform against these four opponents? Oh, this is interesting. Francis Ngannou. I think Ngannou knocks him out. And Adesanya will sometimes put himself in danger when he's exiting away from strikes. And against a powerhouse who has a longer reach than him like that, and it can take any shot Adesanya hits him with, yeah, I think Ngannou would knock him out, catching him at the end of the punch as Adesanya is trying to move away. Alexander Rakic. I gotta go with Adesanya here. It's a dangerous fight. Rakic can be very menacing when he's chasing you down. He mix up his kicks very well. He's actually an excellent kicker. I just think technically he's a step behind in everything he does when he fights someone like Adesanya. Thiago Santos, that's an interesting one. I think Adesanya keeps his range on him for the most part. And for some reason, I do see Santos being very tentative against him. Kind of like how Paulo Costa was. That blitzing speed is not something Adesanya hasn't seen before. Right, and those winging punches, I don't think he's going to catch Adesanya either. Santos also doesn't have the greatest chin. He could take a shot, but I don't think he's going to take Adesanya's shots. And then Alexander Volkov, that would be interesting to see. Ah, oh, man, that's a tough one to call. Volkov has the range. He's very good with his hands. He's not the biggest kicker. There's a lot of front kicks to his game. So I do definitely think Adesanya is the better kicker. He has power that can hurt Volkov. I think a left hook to a right uppercut would be a big weapon for Volkov in this fight. If he advances forward on Adesanya and pushes him back to the cage. But man, I would probably say Adesanya would win a decision here. I think it would be extremely technical. Almost like a chess match and neither of them really hurting the other. 
I think Adesanya would win due to a lot of leg kicks, a lot of jabs to the body and exiting away, trying some stuff here and there, but I think he targets the body and the leg a lot, whereas Volkov is trying to counter him with the right uppercut and maybe try to cut him off with left hooks. But ultimately, I don't see a lot of shots landing in this fight that are devastating. So I say Adesanya outpoints him. And then we go to Falco McLeod. Thoughts on the fact that no champion has lost their belt since 2019. Wow, that is crazy. What, a year and a half without a champion ever losing. What does that mean? Every champion's going to lose this year. <laughs> That'd be insane, man. Imagine every single champ lost. Well, I will make a video very, very soon about who I think is going to be the champ at the end of the year. So I don't want to say too much on this. And yes, all the... All the new champions since 2019 have all been from vacated belts. Or they just won an interim champion. No champion has actually lost. And then we go to LT MMA. If Aldo came in calm and composed in his fight with McGregor and didn't get KO'd in 13 seconds, how do you think he would have fared against him? Definitely better than it went. When that fight happened, I did think Aldo was going to win. And I can bring my cousin on here because we used to talk about this every single day up until the fight happened. And he can vouch for what I was saying how Aldo should win this fight. Leg kicks. I've been talking about this back in 2015. Conor has a weakness to leg kicks. And people talk about all those are orthodox and McGregor Southpaws to the right leg kick is hard to land. Although has also draw people with lead leg kicks. The guy can throw leg kicks with either leg. And this was not when Aldo abandoned his leg kicks. He was throwing leg kicks back then. Right? Look at his fight with Ricardo Lamas. One of the best displays of leg kicks in his entire career. And that was not far off when he fought McGregor. And following a lot of those leg kicks, Aldo had an amazing left hook. So if he knocks McGregor's balance off, there's a potential left hook that's ready to be followed up with. And Aldo is faster than McGregor. Pound for pound, one of the fastest fighters to ever compete in the sport. If he just did not blitz in and overextend himself, he would have fared very well against McGregor. There was a huge possibility he could have won that fight. But mental warfare, big part of the game. I'm glad now people are understanding how Aldo could have fared against McGregor. Your next question is, if Steven Thompson gets a shot against Marty Usman, how do you think that fight goes? Can Steven's footwork and takedown defense match up against Usman's wrestling? It's going to be the footwork because I don't think him stuffing takedowns is going to matter that much against Usman's wrestling. If Usman gets on his hips, Thompson's going down. But the footwork would be very interesting here because it's something Usman has never fought up against before. In fact... Usman hasn't fought a lot of guys with elusive footwork, actually. A lot of the guys he's fought have been plotters. Even Leon Edwards back then was not that much of a mover compared to how he is today. Fighting Haider Hassan, fighting Yakovlev, Warley Elvez, Strickland. Like his whole career, he's never fought a guy with elusive footwork. So I think it would be a problem. If you have never fought a guy like Stephen Thompson, or just an aspect of his game like his footwork, and changing stances and all that stuff, it's going to be tough. It always is for everybody. Even look what happened to Tyron Woodley. Tyron Woodley never fought a guy like that and he struggled. In fact, a lot of people still today think that Stephen Thompson won the rematch. And just the footwork alone is going to allow Stephen Thompson to land any kind of strike he wants. Thompson is not much of a leg kicker. So he doesn't have to be worried about getting his leg caught or something like that. Maybe with some of the side kicks, but it's very hard to catch Wonderboy's side kick. It's so fast and more importantly, it comes so unexpected because you don't know what he's going to throw with that lead leg. When he's in southpaw, which is his main kicking stance, you don't know if that lead leg is going to go to your body or it's going to be a hook kick to your head or if it's going to be a round kick to your head or a side kick to your head. You don't know what this is going to be. So if you reach down to grab the body kick and he hook kicks you in the face, that's it, man. That's why he's so tricky. You do not know what he's going to do. All of his strikes look like it's the same thing. All of his strikes look like it's coming out with the same movements. It all comes down to can Usman's pressure get Wonderboy to the cage to where Usman shoots on him and gets him to the ground. Even on the ground, I don't see Usman doing a ton of damage 
to where Thompson is not the same guy going to the next because the damage is so significant. Tyron Woodley couldn't do that, right? Tyron Woodley's landed some really good shots when he took him down in the first round of their first fight, but it wasn't fight-changing damage. So when you really think about it and put it into that kind of perspective, the footwork alone is going to cause Usman some of the biggest problems of his entire career, and it gives Wonderboy such a big chance of winning that fight. The problem here is Wonderboy gets hit. He makes a mistake here and there. He extends more than he should sometimes. He misses a kick like he did against Pettis. Gets caught for it. He does not want to get caught by Usman. Usman has legit power in his jab, let alone his right hand. So because of that, I would have to say Usman catches Thompson after Wonderboy puts a valiant effort, a troublesome puzzle for Usman to solve. And third question, how do you see a third fight between DJ and Cejudo going if they fought again? I gotta go with Cejudo. I think that was the prime version of DJ. I think it was the best DJ we've ever seen. Cejudo got better after that fight. That's the issue here for DJ. Cejudo did not have the karate stance for that long going into that fight. How many times before that have we seen him with that change in striking, with that karate stance? Two fights. That is it. So he loses Demetrius Johnson, loses to Joseph Benavidez. In both those fights, he fought with a very similar striking approach. He goes against Wilson Hayes and Sergio Pettis. Karate stance, a lot of wrestling. Goes right into the DJ fight with the same thing. He looked better against TJ, even better against Moraes due to the fact that he was able to adjust in the fight the way he did. And then looked even better against Dominic Cruz with that same striking style. And when DJ went to one championship, he didn't look as dominant as he did in the UFC. His striking seemed to have been exposed a bit uppercuts tend to land on him now he's wrestling more than ever before he's not standing with a lot of guys over there mainly because he's smaller than everybody and it's hard for him to really gauge distance and get in on such long guys which he's always had a problem with against Dominic Cruz for an example I think Suhuda would beat him in a rubber match and be more dominant in it so excellent questions man and then we go to Leiti Meiti if Hori were to rematch Wonderboy who would you see winning and how would it be different from the first well Hori is a different fighter now than he was back then not far more, but he's just a little bit more quick on the trigger. But here's the thing, man. So people will talk about Hori as the kicks. He has the leg kicks and the body kicks that should get to Wonderboy. He has some of the best body kicks of the sport. He has amazing leg kicks. He's so fast for the division. But he came with that same approach when he fought Wonderboy. He did the same thing. He went to the legs and went to the body. It didn't matter that much at the end of the day. And he's fast, but Wonderboy's faster. Wonderboy's also way better with angles. I think if Wonderboy doesn't make that same mistake, like he's done time after time, just happens to get caught after missing a strike or blitzing in too much or whatever that is, if he sticks to a very intelligent, calm, composed, striking game with Jorge, I think he beats Jorge again. Especially if Wonderboy is able to pressure Jorge a little bit because Jorge can be dangerous if you get in too close with your pressure. But due to the distance that Wonderboy keeps on his opponents, if he pushes Jorge back, which I think he would, after the first round or so, where Hori's trying to establish some kind of dominance in the fight and just failing at finding the chin, Wonderboy starts countering him and Hori starts to have to solve this puzzle and he starts backing up in the process. Wonderboy keeps that long range, man. He's always at kicking range. Hori cannot kick on the back foot. Wonderboy's going to find body kicks. He's going to throw head kicks. He's going to throw a bunch of different stuff at Jorge while maintaining that distance at all times. Jorge's double switch into a left overhand is a big weapon that can catch someone like Wonderboy, right? All of a sudden, he just finds that blitzing punch and catches him as Wonderboy is trying to, let's say, retract one of those big kicks. That's a possibility. In MMA, there is no guarantee. There's never 100% this fighter is going to win. But I'd say Wonderboy would probably beat Jorge in a rematch 60-40. to 40. And I think I'm being a bit generous 
in a lot of people's opinion when I say 60 to 40. I think people think a little bit more. I think most people think that Wonderboy has a big chance of beating Hori Masvidal. And I know a lot of people are going to say, I just mentioned that Usman would eventually catch Wonderboy. So why can't Masvidal do the same thing? Well, Masvidal can do the same thing, but it's going to be a lot harder because there's a difference in pressure here. Usman is going to pressure Wonderboy heavily in the fight. And then you have Jorge, who's generally being the one that's getting pushed back. Notice in Jorge's fights how he's almost never the guy pressuring his opponent. Whether it be against Usman, against Darren Till, against Nate Diaz. You generally tend to see him backing up to the cage. And when he's backed up to the cage, he becomes way more defensive. He doesn't mix up his offense and defense that much when he's getting heavily pressured back. And that's a bad thing going against Wonderboy. Because Wonderboy is the trickiest puzzle to solve. Especially being on the back foot. With Usman pressuring Wonderboy, there's a lot of opportunity for him to attack Wonderboy, make him pay for the kicks, and always threaten with takedowns. It's an entirely different thing. And then we go to Mouth Breather. Who do you consider the greatest waste of talent in this generation of MMA? Love the podcast, man. Hope you're holding up well. Thank you so much, man. In this generation, I know a lot of people already think of Sean O'Malley, and that's mainly because of his himself. Like, no one did it to him. That mentally undefeated mentality is probably not the best thing in MMA. But i probably say Johnny Walker is one of them. Johnny Walker, due to his training mishaps, he never got with the right guy, and maybe it's his own mind that just doesn't allow him to progress in certain things that he needs to get better at. Right? He's always trying to find a new coach to get him better. New coach to get him better, when it might just be himself. Because of course, training with those guys in Thailand, they're going to teach him about defense. Of course, Faraz Sahabi is going to train you defense. I mean, that's what all of his guys know. Roy McDonald, GSP, they're amazing at defense. At all forms of defense. There's no way that he did not teach Johnny Walker something that wouldn't help him. I don't believe that. I see someone saying Kevin Lee. Yeah, Kevin Lee, I can say. Again, what is the pattern here? Sean O'Malley, Johnny Walker, Kevin Lee, I see Uriah Hall, Luke Rockhold, I see. It's all of themselves. No one's doing it to them. The only guy that you could say was maybe not a great waste of talent that wasn't due to his own mental fallings or whatever it is it was probably Darren Till in a way it looked like when they threw him at Tyron Woodley and got destroyed then lost to Hori Mazal the way he did it made a lot of people sad because it, it looked like Darren Till was probably not going to be the guy that they thought he would be great thing he went out to middleweight and reformed himself in that division but when it comes to guys that we just talked about here it's all their own mental state it's the way they go about things it's the way they think about the sport. It's this mental undefeated thing that they all have. Or Uriah Hall's too nice. Right? Uriah Hall's always had that thing. And that's not his fault. That's just how he was born. Ever since the Ultimate Fighter, the guy's just too nice. He is great for being too nice. He had the talent, at least. He's older now. He had the talent to be one of the best middleweights of all time. But even still today, the guy just doesn't pull the trigger. So any of those guys, I would say, could be up there. Man, when you make me think about Uriah Hall, it just... Brings me back to when I watched him in The Ultimate Fighter. I watched it live, and it was like the craziest thing I've ever seen. Everybody, the professional fighters, analysts, commentators, everybody thought Uriah Hall was going to be the thing in middleweight. It's a foregone conclusion. He's going to fight Anderson Silva and give him one of the hardest fights of his career. And then he goes and fights Kelvin Gaslam in the finale, and he doesn't do anything. And then he gets multiple fights where it's like, where's the guy from The Ultimate Fighter? It's not he's getting outclassed and dominated. Like, there's so much airspace in the fight there's so much not happening and he's just not doing anything he's not pulling the trigger when there's opportunities he doesn't try to finish the opponent when they're hurt it was just so weird to watch that whole saga 
again, if any of these fighters watch this podcast or listen to it, please don't get mad at me. I'm just answering the question. If anything, just use this as fuel to motivate you. Because I want to see all these guys perform. I want to see all these guys be great that they definitely can be and we all hope they can be. There's no one that's thinking, oh, I hope Kevin Lee never meets his talent in the sport. I think everybody would love to see Kevin Lee be a champion and actually compete to the best he can and fulfill the talent that he has. There's no one that's hoping that these guys are never going to be anything. Oh, and here's an interesting question by Aditya Rangarajan. I know I pronounced that wrong. I'm so sorry. Connor's coaches said that they trained for light kicks from Dustin, but couldn't replicate its impact in training. But I don't get how anyone trained specifically to guard from a particular shot by replicating its impact in training. Heck, Max Holloway just had the performance of his career after no sparring. Does the reasoning from McGregor's camp hold water? especially considering that Kavanaugh made no reference to the calf kicks at the end of the first round. Amazing points right there. You didn't really hear much from Kavanaugh in terms of like what to do to stop the leg kicks from happening and really focus on that part of the game. If in fact he did train Connor for the leg kicks, I do think he trained Connor for the leg kicks, but I don't think it was a big focus in the training camp. I don't think they understood that that was a big hole in Connor's game because he never really had to pay for it in the past. When's the last time Connor got damaged by leg kicks in a fight? I don't think they expected it to be that heavy of a game plan from Dustin Poirier. And here's the thing about replicating the impact of strikes in training. It's not just calf kicks. It's every kick. You're never going to feel the full impact of a kick in training or in sparring. Ever. There's shin pads for a reason. But replicating the impact of the blow is absolutely irrelevant. If it was a big part of the training camp, you are trained not to get hit by it at all. Forget about the impact of it. Avoid the kick as much as possible. Defend the kick as much as possible. Even thinking about the impact of the strike is already a bad thing going into training camp. It means that you're probably not focused on it that much or you're making excuses after the fight. That's really what it is. I've never heard someone say we couldn't replicate the same kind of impact of the strike in training. Well, defense is all about not getting hit at all. So what's the impact really mean? Does that hold any water in a training camp? No, not necessarily. The best kind of defense is not getting hit at all. Not how much can I absorb from the damage. What I think is Connor's style and his stance is just generally weak to leg kicks, specifically calf kicks. Connor also said before that he didn't even know about the calf kick because he's never experienced it. And it's a newer technique where he wasn't an MMA. Said he was doing other stuff. And it kind of became something new while he was trying to get a fight negotiating with the UFC. So he's kind of blaming the organization for that lack of preparation for this new technique that is the calf kick. Well, the calf kick is not a new technique. In fact, an MMA Benson Henderson, way before Connor even came into the UFC, was throwing this kick. Yes, the trend started later, but the trend was happening even when Connor was competing. Look what Jeremy Stevens did to Gilbert Melendez, one of the best displays of calf kicks ever. And when did that fight happen? That happened back in 2017. Connor was fighting an MMA back then. This is before Connor fought Habib, Donald Cerrone, Dustin Poirier. He had plenty of time to research and study the game and put this leg kick into into his training. I don't buy that excuse that he made. And if it's true, that's only his fault. How many fighters did we all witness get their leg destroyed by this calf kick and Connor just happened to not know about it? Right, look at what happened to Sean O'Malley. Look what happened to Henry Cejudo when he fought Demetrius Johnson. Look at Thiago Santos when he fought John Jones. Miguel Baeza versus Hector Aldana. Dan Hooker versus Paul Felder. All of these fights and Connor just couldn't watch on a fight pass or something? I don't buy it at all, man. Fighters are getting better. Dustin Poirier is the same generation as Conor McGregor. He's been fighting for so long. Why can he make the adjustment 
and put this kind of kick into his game while Connor can't. I don't buy the whole thing that he was out of MMA action doing other things because it was already happening before he fought Habib and those guys. The calf kick was a thing in MMA while he was having his fights with Nate Diaz and Eddie Alvarez. If the way you understand to put a certain strike or technique into your training camp and drill it is by experiencing it firsthand, you're never going to get ahead of the sport. Everybody is just going to pass you up because fighters are implementing these techniques without experiencing it just by watching the sport or just by having an open mind expanding to all different forms of techniques and martial arts. For an example, Henry Cejudo. Where did that karate stance come from? He never fought a karate fighter before. He didn't have to experience it and made that excuse after a fight. No, he expanded himself and trained with the Pitbull brothers, adding to his game that allowed him to defeat Demetrius Johnson. And then we go to the next question. Thoughts on the UFC probably giving Jorge a title shot? To me, that's just as bad as if they made Conor Dustin Trilogy for the belt. Yeah, you could see it as just as bad, even worse, given the fact that there is a lot of contenders at the welterweight division, whereas in lightweight, Habib is holding the belt still, and there's like one other guy that could potentially fight for that title, and that's Charles Oliveira. In welterweight, there's so many guys. There's Colby Covington, Leon Edwards, Stephen Thompson. All those guys could fight for the belt, and it would make sense. Yes, Hori took the fight on short notice, wasn't super dominant from Kamaru Usman, and then you have Conor getting knocked out by Dustin Poirier, so the results are very different, and there's no excuse for Conor losing to Dustin, whereas there's some excuse for Jorge losing to Kamaru. But I think that aspect kind of levels it out with the number of contenders that are ready to fight for the belt. It should not be Jorge Masvidal. That fight will only happen because of the money. It should either be Colby, Leon if he beats Bilal Muhammad, or Stephen Thompson. That is it. Jorge, I think, would need another fight or two to get back to the title. And then we go to Danny R. Stylistic matchups and how the fight would go. Wonderboy versus Adesanya. The leg kicks would be devastating from Adesanya. And if it ever gets in the clinch, Wonderboy is pretty much done. In a lot of other areas, it'd be very competitive. But those are the two dominant areas of the fight. There's almost nothing about Wonderboy that would give him a huge advantage over Adesanya. Michelle Pajera versus Johnny Walker. Guess who would go with Johnny Walker? Their style is so similar. Wild men, but Pajera has more fundamentals. So when you're talking about styles, Pajera is a better style because he has the fundamentals down defensively and offensively. Johnny Walker kind of only has it offensively. That's it. So stylistically, I would say Pajera. But if they were to fight each other as how they are, I'd probably lean Johnny Walker because he's so much bigger and stronger and more powerful and crazier. I guess. Habib versus Usman. Stylistically, Habib is better than Usman. He's the full package. He's the better kicker. He has better knees. He's better on the ground entirely. He could be even better in the clinch due to his judo background. Yeah, I would say Habib stylistically is better than Usman. But I think Usman would beat him in a fight probably. Then we go to Angelo Caz. Who has the more dangerous ground game? Brian Ortega or Charles Oliveira? Oh man. I'd say they're like even. I lean Brian Ortega because... I've seen positions where Charles Oliveira was dominated on the ground. And I've never seen that happen to Brian Ortega. Every time Brian Ortega goes to the ground, he is the superior grappler. But the difference is, Oliveira's ground game has evolved immensely. That Tony Ferguson fight is evidence of that. When he's patient on the ground, he may be the most dangerous guy on the ground in the entire UFC. Or at least like top 5. So I'd say Ortega's probably more dangerous because he's more risk-taking as of late. 
but I think there's more promise in Charles Oliveira's ground game due to the wrestling that he's implementing. And then the final question, we go to German Klar. Do you think the best strategy for Jan to use against Izzy would be a fast start and try to catch him off guard with something big, a la Usman versus Burns? Or stay patient and let Izzy lead, something he's usually not comfortable doing? I say the latter. Not only because it's something Izzy doesn't like to do sometimes, but Jan is not as good moving forward. It's the main reason he got knocked off by Thiago Santos. Jan Blahovic is way better on the back foot than he is moving forward. Evident of all his knockouts, every knockout he has, whether it be against Dominic Reyes, Corey Anderson, somewhat with a Luke Rockhold win, at least he wasn't moving forward, all these knockouts are him either being in position and staying still or moving backwards. It's never moving forward. Whenever he moves forward, there tends to be some big openings he exposes on himself. So if Jan is patient and makes Izzy lead the fight and Jan just starts going at the legs and going at the body with his kicks and threatening Izzy with powerful counter shots, it's going to make Izzy way less active in this fight. And from then on, Jan just has to win through the power, just add up on points and land the bigger shots because I don't think he's going to land more shots than Izzy. I think Izzy, no matter what, is going to have a higher punch count or strike count against Jan Blahovic due to the speed and due to the reach. So Jan has to depend on his power to add up on the damage points for the judges to see or eventually knock out Adesanya. And that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure to like, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you're listening to the audio version of this. My next video is going to be the predictions for this weekend's card. Can't wait to do that. And I'll see you guys then.